The following is a special sports presentation of UltimateSportsTalk.com. A swing and a drive to deep right, away back, UltimateSportsTalk.com now presents the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show, an in-depth look at the Cincinnati Reds and the Cleveland Indians. For the fifth consecutive year, we examine the teams and their progress throughout the baseball season. And now, the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Happy Labor Day, everyone. A pleasant good evening. I'm Dave Mitchell. Glad to have you along on tonight's Ohio Baseball Weekly Show, where we sit back and talk about the Cleveland Indians and the Cincinnati Reds. A lot going on with both teams this week as we enter the waning days of the Major League Baseball season. The Indians, a lot going on on the field for the Reds, a lot going on off the field. And in order to get into that, we've got to go down to parts south of Ohio and talk to our resident Reds expert, Mark Donahue. Mark, how was your holiday? Holiday is fine. Uh, Our son is visiting us, which is always a good thing. But uh, normally at this time of year, uh, you like to think that your team that you're rooting for is in the playoffs anticipating some fun in September, and all I can do is look at the Indians and be jealous. Well, do you think that the Indians actually have a shot? They're five games out of the wild card, no chance at the division. That's that's done. 27 games left, they're five games out. Let's ask an outsider. Do you think the Indians actually have a chance? Well, let me ask you a question. How many teams are between the Indians and uh, the, the second Texas wild card? Four. Four? Yes. Okay. Yeah. One of them. One of them is Minnesota. And how many games do they have against Minnesota? Seven. How many games do they have against the other teams that they're chasing? None. Okay. Well, California, or Los Angeles. I always want to call the Angels California, the Angels, and um, Texas. Hey, Dave. Who would you rather be, the Reds or the Indians? Oh, I'd rather be the Indians right now. Okay. You're still in the pennant race. And those teams are going to be knocking each other off. And do you have a chance? Absolutely, you got a chance. Is it is it a good chance? No, I wouldn't bet the house on it. But that's that's the part of baseball that's so intriguing that you do have a chance. Here it is September. But let me ask you another question. I remember back. It was at least two months ago, maybe longer. And at the time, the Indians were only four games out. And it was it was I think it was right before the trade deadline. Now, you look back at what the Indians did not do. Do you think now, looking back, hindsight's twenty twenty, could there have been any transactions that the Indians made that would have reduced this five-game gap and made them have a much better chance to be in the playoffs? There really wasn't anything that they were talking about other than getting Carlos Gomez out of – out of Milwaukee. Now, that was the only thing that they were really talking about. Well, Could he have come in here and played any better than Abraham Almonte? Uh, boy, I'll tell you what, Mark. It would be hard to say that Gomez could have come in and played any better center field and hit any better than Almonte has done over the last month, the month and a half that he's been with the Indians. Would I have liked to see Cargo in the Indians lineup? Yeah, because he's a right-handed power hitter, and Almonte isn't. I don't think he could have done as much as what Almonte has done. You, you mean Cargo from Colorado? Colorado, yes, sorry. Well, he's a left-handed hitter. He's a left-handed hitter? Yeah, he's left-handed. The guy who has 32 home runs leading the American League in hitting, or in home runs, yeah, he's, he's left-handed. Well, he's the one I mean, who went to Houston. No, no, Cargo from Colorado is a left-hand hitter, and uh, you're. T- but the guy from Milwaukee went to Houston. That's right, and yeah, and that's who I'm talking about. Oh, okay. You called him Cargo. I, I, did, I didn't know that was his nickname because that's the guy in Colorado. Yeah, it's the same same thing. Okay, but that's that's a, that's who Milwaukee ended up trading him to was to Houston, and that that was the only guy that the Indians seemed to be interested in. Was him? Well, again, you are in a much better chance, a position than a lot of other teams out there. And is it a long shot? Yeah, but you know, you go on an eight-game winning streak, and you know, you're back in it. 
So the thing that, that I like about the Indians' position right now, and it's I look at it in comparison to the Reds, your AAA team is tied for first place. And the Reds' AAA team in the same division or same league is 20 games behind. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, well, your AAA team is in the majors right now. <laughs> well, well, pretty much, and and they're not they're not performing well. Uh, you, you know why the AAA team was is you know in 20 games out of first place is because the guys they brought up are just not performing. I mean, you look at and even the, the roster that the Indians have right now. Uh, a couple of guys stand out to me because these are supposed to be guys who are going to be leading the Reds down the the, the promised land. Uh, you know, one of the guys they got in the trade for Cueto was Brandon Finnegan. He's 0-3 with a 623 ERA at AAA. Uh, Robert Stevenson, who is the next great thing for the Reds, he's 4-4 four four with a 404 ERA. Singrani who was in the starting rotation earlier this year, is still recovering from arm injury, probably won't pitch the rest of the year. The Louisville Bats have lost 10 in a row, and they're 20 games out of first place. Dave, that is not a good situation. (laughs) No, it's not. But you've got to remember, too, that the Columbus Clippers are stockpiled full of major league ball players that just aren't quite good enough to make the majors. Yeah, but that's isn't that what you want at AAA? I want guys that are going to be prospects that are actually going to be guys that I can bring up that are going to contribute for years to come, not guys that are on their last leg trying to get a last paycheck. Well, if they must be pretty good. They're 20 games ahead of the of the Reds AAA team, and if I look at the two organizations, uh, I think the Indians are, are much better stocked uh, to, to make a run next year and, and for years to come than the Reds are. The Reds have no position players, Dave. They, they have nobody on their roster that you can look next year and say, yeah, that guy's going to be in the starting lineup. There's not one. Winker is the closest thing, and he's hitting 275. And he's you know hit eight or nine home runs, and that that's – that's it, and, and he's supposed to be absolutely their number one prospect. That tells me the cupboard is rather bare. Well, the Indians have brought up all their guys that they have a shot over the next two years of actually contributing to this team in Urshela and uh, Lindor. Lind, you know, Lindor, Mark, i got to tell you, he's going to be the rookie of the year. If he's not the rookie of the year, there is no rookie of the year this year. This kid has done everything in the last three months since coming up at the end of May, that you could want out of a rookie. He has really instilled some confidence and some excitement in this team once he got his feet firmly planted on Major League ground. About the first month, he had a tough time and was just kind of feeling his way. And once he got his confidence, once he got you know, his feet on the ground, he really started playing some ball. And Urshela the same way. And I think they, they've got a couple of guys on the left side of that infield, Mark, that they can actually develop and, and and can depend upon for the next years to come on this team. You know, an interesting sidebar, I mentioned uh, Finnegan uh, as one of the top prospects the Reds got in that Johnny Cueto deal. You know, it's interesting, I don't know if you've been following it or not, and I saw this now two or three times on the Internet. Johnny Cueto with the Royals, he's 0-4, with a 9.45 ERA, he's, he's currently in a four-game losing streak. He's yielded 21 earned runs and 37 hits. Now, listen, 37 hits in 20 innings. Uh, this yesterday, he allowed five runs in three innings, the shortest outing since uh, June of 2013. Uh, there have been a number of people who have commented that Johnny Cueto is very unhappy in Kansas City. He feels homesick. You know, he, he's not with his friends on, on the Reds team. And I just wonder if Johnny Cueto might take a, a home team discount now. You know, he's going to be a free agent. Now, would the Reds want him back even at a discount? Because a discount you know, would still probably be, you know, at least $20 million a year. But it's, it's interesting. He, Johnny Cueto 
has always been known as a rather emotional guy. He wears his heart on the sleeve. And the Reds signed him when he was 16 years old. He's been with that organization for well over a decade. And um, I just wonder if, if the Reds might have a sh- shot at sh- signing him. And if they do, would they? Well, Mark, ESPN, the guys on ESPN last night, they were talking about his outing. They said his first fastball yesterday topped the jugs gun at a whopping 79 miles an hour, and he never tipped it at any higher than 85, and they're speculating that his arm is hurt. Well, it may well be, and uh, again, that's not going to help him in terms of valuation. This is his walk year, and unless he can show that he has that fastball back, um, n- nobody, including the Reds, are going to want to step up and, and pay the kind of money that he was demanding. Uh, you know, his uh, his agent may have made a huge mistake. And in fact, if he is hurt, the Reds may have made the coup of the year uh, by trading him when they did. You know, these agents, I wanted to get into this Cueto and Matt Harvey thing a little bit later on in the show, but we might as well get into it now. These agents like Scott Boris and and the other agents that deal with these major league players, they don't have, it used to be, Mark, they had the best interests at heart for their players. That was 20, 30 years ago. And they would listen to the players. The players had more of an input into what it was that they wanted. For example, Pete Rose always told his agent what he wanted. Johnny Bench did the same thing. You had players out there that told their agents what they wanted. Now the agents are dictating what these players should do, and the players are just being led around by the nose. Dave, I don't think it's necessarily the agent as much as it is the union. Uh, there are a lot of players that have in the past had the opportunity to, you know, you know, if you're making $15 million a year as opposed to $20 million a year, but you want to live in San Diego and play, you know, close to home or whatever, The union just really, they can't, I guess, stop it, but they call you a scab and you get calls from other people because they want to keep those salaries up. And they don't care about the the happiness of the player. Uh, All they care about is getting the most and driving the value of those contracts as high as they can get them. Well, it must be a new thing because Marvin Miller and Donald Fear never seem to put their nose in these things. It's only been the last few years. I mean, for example, Jim Tomey wanted to stay in Cleveland. That that came out just a few years ago. He had a deal set to stay with the Indians when he went to Philadelphia, but the union put so much pressure on him to take the Phillies offer that he finally had to take it. And the only reason, really, that Charlie Manuel was named the manager of the Phillies was because they wanted to entice Tomey to come to Philadelphia, and that was one of the swaying reasons, that plus the union, really putting the pressure on him to take that deal. Well, that's precisely what I'm saying, that the union has as much or more clout with the, the player as the as the agent. But of course, the agent has a vested interest. I mean, with Scott Boris and, and Matt Harvey, uh, you know, that's a situation. You, you wonder, is he looking out for the best interest and the health of his client? which that's going to be his argument. But who knows better than the player? I mean, you know if you're hurt. You know if you're tired. And the the thing, I heard this again. You and I have talked about this several times uh, with the Washington Nationals and Steven Strasburg two years ago. That team may never get back to the World Series in our lifetime. And they had a chance to win it. And that young man was healthy. And you, you can't tell me they wouldn't have won those last one of those last two games with Strasburg uh, to win that World Series, you know, to go to the World Series. And we'll never know. But uh, that, that and this is so this is so eerily similar to Mark. The only thing and I went back and looked it up. The only difference between these two situations is that Strasburg and Boris at that point in time said 150 innings. Now Harvey's saying and Boris. 180 innings. Now, we've kind of discussed this. What's more important, the innings or the pitches that this guy has thrown? Well, obviously it's the pitches, but it's also more than that. It's the, it's the number of pitches and the situation of those pitches. Right. If you're constantly pitching out of trouble and you're pitching 
you know, with the bases loaded or two guys out or two guys on and one man out, and you and you have to really go after it. Those are much more stressful pitches. I mean, 20 of those pitches are worth 60 of, of non-stress pitches where you've got a five-run lead and there's nobody on and you're just you're mowing them down. Uh, th- those pitches don't put a lot of stress on your arm. It's when you have to get outs that, that is um, much more telling on your on your arm. But as, as we have talked in the past, uh, there's a difference today in how these young pitchers are either being protected or being hurt. I don't know what it is. But 20, 30, 40 years ago, you know, Robin Roberts would normally throw 300 innings a year in a four-man rotation and never had a sore arm. And you look at the Braves in the 90s. Uh, they, they had a five-man rotation sometimes. But Glavin and Maddox and, and all those guys, Smoltz, they all threw a ton of innings. And they pitched every day. They threw a baseball every day. And their arms got so strong that they, they didn't get hurt. And today, these young kids... They're lifting a tremendous amount of weight coming out of high school and college. I mean, doing doing the uh, tryouts we did this summer, some of these kids are coming in at 12 years old, and they're bench pressing every day of their, of their life. They're doing curls. They're coming in. They're strong. But that, that muscle, they're building up in their shoulders and their legs uh, and other parts of their body puts additional stress on their elbow. And that is what is, is falling apart now. The, the elbow for these kids, they're throwing breaking balls early. Uh, they're throwing change-ups, which are really hard on the arm. And I, I think that is the issue. I, I think weights have a lot to do with it. Well, I, I agree with you because you've been a pitcher. But I'll tell you one thing. When you throw the ball overhand, you've got to have muscles that are limber. You have to have muscles that are going to move. And if you you know Mark that if you go in there and you lift weights, your muscles tighten, they grow, there's not as much movement, they're not as limber as they were before. You've seen oh look at Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm just going to use him for an example. That guy is not exactly the most limber guy in the world. Sylvester Stallone is the same way. Yeah, they do yoga and yeah, they do the stretches and everything. But they're not as limber as somebody who's a gymnast or somebody who who does a lot of running in their life. And to pitch mark, your shoulder and your elbow have to be limber. It has to be loose. And if you've been lifting weights throughout the winter, those muscles are tight. They don't get as loose as they have to be. And I think they are more apt to having injury. Well, I can understand doing a lot of leg uh, exercises if you're a pitcher because your power comes from your legs and your butt. I mean, that's where the, the, the massive power comes from. But the if you look at the slow motion pictures, um, video of these pitchers, these young kids, I saw the Little League World Series last week, as a matter of fact, and these kids are throwing equivalent of 92, 93, 94 miles an hour when they're 12 years old. And the, the torque they're putting on their arms is absolutely amazing at such a young age. And, you know, every era goes through changes, and I'm just wondering that we look back 20 years from now, even 10 years from now, we're going to say, what were we thinking of? It's like when, you know, when you were a kid, you were never allowed to have water during practice. <laughs> what, how stupid can you be? But coaches were, and that wasn't that long ago. You go through a football practice, and they wanted to make you tough so you couldn't drink. Same with basketball and baseball. Yeah, well, you can't drink until after practice. How ridiculous. But that, that to me, is as egregious as some of the things they're making kids do today. And just the stress they're putting on these young players' bodies. Again, the tryouts we had, these kids were telling me, now these are 12, 13, 14-year-old kids. They're playing 60 to 70 games a year. And not including you know some all-star games and other stuff. That's incredible for a young man to put that kind of stress on their body uh, for one sport. And and I had a kid, I don't know if he was telling me the truth, he told me he'd played over 100 games. I believe that. I, I do. I believe that. Number one, they're going to end up hating the sport because, you you know, you get bored. And another interesting point that came, it came up, I heard it yesterday on radio and I forgot where. These kids forget what it's like to be on a team. 
Because if you're playing 70 to 100 games, you're playing on a lot of all-star teams, touring teams, elite teams. There's all kinds of different names they have for them. But these are, these are guns for hire. And you go down and play, and all you're trying to do is hit a three-run home run or throw a 90-mile-an-hour fastball so you get signed in front of a scout. They don't care about you know, give, you know, trying to win the game, you know, giving themselves up, hitting to the right side, learning how to play the game. And that, again, is something I'm, I'm, I wasn't as close to it until this summer when I saw what these kids are going through, and I think it's going to ruin the sport for a lot of them. Mark, you, you watched the Little League World Series. You've seen these kids during the tryouts for the movie. i got to tell you, I have seen a lot of youth league baseball and stuff. There are no fundamentals being taught at the youth level. Now, I don't know whether it's because the coaches don't know the fundamentals or just don't want to take the time to coach the fundamentals, but if you looked, and I'm just going to focus on the pitchers right now at the Little League World Series, how many of them had a smooth, fluid delivery to the plate? Virtually none. That's right. They, they put so much torque in their arm. Go back and look at... There are two guys that I think of when I think of pitchers that had fluid deliveries to the mount or to the plate. One of them was, of course, Tom Seaver. He had probably the best delivery and the most fundamental delivery to the plate of anyone. Would you agree? I would agree. I mean, remember Tom Seaver, his knee hit the ground almost on every pitch. He was he was low. He was over the top. He got a lot of, you know, his legs and butt. Um, I, I, I lived near Tom Seaver in Cincinnati. I remember him walking around in shorts, seeing him around the pool. And he, he was a big guy from the waist down. He was... He had big legs, and he, he looked like a football player. But he had that power drive that you don't see from a lot of these kids today. It's all arm. And uh, that's, you know, you, you look at Stevenson, and it, look at Strasburg. His motion is is arm surgery waiting to happen every time he yes. throws. And I, I don't know why somebody didn't get him early and change that motion. He's He said what? Three surgeries already, and he's only his fifth year in the in the majors, uh, or, or fourth year. Uh, and, and you look at him throw one time, you say, "Oh wow, that guy's going to have a sore arm." You know the other guy that I remember, and, and, and Steve Carlton. He had a great motion as a left-hander to the plate, and he never had an arm injury. Straight over the top, uh, devastating slider. Uh, you know, he had easy gas, but his slider was his, his make-or-break pitch. But, you know, I was, I was around, I umpired this year, too, and I got to see and hear a lot of these coaches, and God bless these guys. They, they're giving their time, and they're so committed, and they're so dedicated to what they're trying to do, which is to help the kids become, you know, winning team and, and, and all this stuff. But some of the, I heard these guys say things, that were so wrong, <laughs> you know, about, right. about I, I know, especially in a, the approach to hitting, you know, the, the way you have to stride into the ball. No, you, you don't want to stride into the ball. You, you, the, the best hitters don't stride. They lift their foot, but they don't stride. It's like hitting a moving target. And, and the fathers, I mean, they, they drive me insane hearing these guys in the bleachers telling their kids exactly the wrong thing to do. And fathers ought to sign an oath when they, you know, raise a boy. I will. I, I promise I will not try and teach my kid how to hit because I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I've been through, been through the wars, Mark. I could write a book about my trials and tribulations through little league baseball and dealing with parents and dealing with what you've got. And the thing about it is, Mark, it is so easy now for parents to take their kid out of a situation and put them into another one. And I think that has a lot to do with why the fundamentals are so poor. You bring up Steven Strasburg. Who knows? Maybe the coach was, every coach that he dealt with coming up through the ranks was afraid to change that motion 
because of and, and this is just purely speculation on my part. So this is don't take this as gospel, but I've seen this happen with other kids. You try to change something in a kid, the parents don't like it or the kid doesn't have immediate success with the changes that you've made. Immediately the parents think that the coach is an idiot and they'll take him to the next town and go play for them. I've seen that not only in baseball, but I've seen it in volleyball, I've seen it in soccer. You see it in every sport now, especially with open enrollment in high school. Oh, I agree. And uh, the parents are thinking, my kid's going to be the next guy to sign for a you know, $3 million signing bonus. And the, the kids are beginning, again, when I was umpiring, the kids, they're like little robots. They go out there, and, and Dave, some of these kids, I, I umpired a, I think it was a 10 and under league, and these kids had played 50 games already, and it was only, I guess it was June. <laughs> they played 50 games, and they're playing every day, but they're not playing. They're not having fun with baseball. And one of the things that I, I just wish people in the know would do is have fields where kids can go play baseball during the day and play it for fun. Just go out and play with a bunch of other guys. That's how you learn to play the game. You you get there at ten o'clock. You bring some, you know, you bring a sandwich and a coke, and you sit there and, and you have lunch with your buddies, and and you play ball all day. And you learn how to go to the opposite field because you you have these little games that teach you how to do that. But you have fun playing it. And when I was umping, I was just some of these kids I felt so sorry for because they were dragging out there. There was no enthusiasm. Uh, they were doing the wrong things. They were not having fun with the sport. And that's because of the parents and it's because of the coaches. And this this dream that they're all going to get Division One scholarships or they're going to sign huge contracts, it's not going to happen unless the kid wants to play. And these kids didn't want to play. And I, I umped enough games to see that. But I also saw it when we were doing our own tryouts. It, it, it's... Right now, I'm, I'm very upset with the, the state of this, but I don't know how, you know, how do you change it? I don't know how you change it, Mark. That, that's a very good question because, first of all, kids are so stuck with their PlayStations and Xboxes anymore that they just stay inside where it's air-conditioned, and they don't go outside and play during the day. Secondly, the parents really don't want them to go outside and play anymore for fear that, that they're, you know... Let's be honest. The parents are being overprotective. If they don't know where their child is every moment of every day, they're worried. And it used to be my, my mom and dad, if they would go out in the backyard and yell for me, I'd be home within minutes. Anymore, if you text your kid, you don't have a clue where they are. But my parents always knew I was somewhere in the neighborhood. I don't know if that's how how you were when you were a kid, but they, you know, you'd just go out in the backyard, and my mom would yell for me to come for supper, and I'd be I'd be there in a few minutes. Well, it's the over organization of the sport that I object to. Where oh yes, kids, yeah, that's the difference in basketball. Uh, kids can go to a playground and play a pickup game and just have fun. They they just go play basketball. That's why so many inner city kids don't play baseball. Because there's no no place or equipment, you can't just go down and play one on one baseball unless you have a bat and a ball and you know gloves and all that stuff. It's expensive, but basketball you need a ball, and you got a court and there's always guys there to play, and that's that's how you grow talent. That's how you learn how to play the game, and learning to play the game is not having some idiot father who who never played himself, trying to teach his kid how to throw and hit. It's like that commercial on TV. Remember that? It, it, I saw it last year where the guy's, the father's trying to teach his kid to throw, and it looks like the, the father's having a spasm when he throws. And the kid... <laughs> he, he, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, it's it really funny commercial, but it, it, it was so accurately depicting what is happening out there were these, same with the coaches, and I, again, I admire them for their time and their commitment, and some are very good. Some do know the game. I will, I will give you that. But m most don't. And they, they're doing the, you know, they love their kid, and then they need a coach, and they're stepping up, and that's terrific. But in, in many cases, that is ruining the sport for a lot of kids, 
And I, I wish there was a community out there that would understand that. And, and I think it starts with Major League Baseball. They should Mark, supply these kids' equipment and fields and let them play. Mark, I'm, I'm going to not mention any names to protect the innocent, but I will mention Greg Mitchell, who most everybody knows, produces this show and is my older son. And, you know, I've always said the only guy that could keep Greg from hitting was his high school coach. And that's what it was. Greg hit every area, every league that he ever hit in until he became a senior and ended up playing for this guy that was his high school baseball coach. And this guy tried to change everything about his swing and just totally got Greg so confused that Greg hated the game of baseball. He hated it. He wanted to play college ball, but didn't play because by the time his senior year was over, he had hated the game of baseball so much because of what this coach did. And I've seen other players, and a coach can really make or break a player, Mark. He can. And when you look at coaches, and they don't know what they're doing, and the parents don't know what they're doing, then the kids are listening to these guys. That's why the state of baseball is in the flux that it's in today. Nobody can bunt. Nobody can field an easy grounder. I'm not going to say nobody, but a majority of the players, you know what I'm saying, Mark. The fundamentals in Major League Baseball today are absolutely atrocious. Now, some people will blame the designated here for it and the way that the American League plays the game as opposed to the National League. But still in all, you look at these pitchers, Mark, I've never seen a bunch of pitchers in the National League that couldn't even put the bat on the ball when they're bunting, let alone put a good bunt down. It's because, Dave, when they grow up, they are designated as a pitcher when they're eight years old. Not as a player, but as a pitcher. Yes. And that's why you have so many... You know, Mike Leake was the exception, a good exception. He played shortstop at Arizona State. Well... To play shortstop at a D1 school like Arizona State, you got to be damn good. And he was a he was a great athlete who also could throw. But he but he played. He 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 was a great hitter in college, and that's what you need more of. But these these again these kids are designated. I mean again, I, at these tryouts we had we had five or six kids who I asked them if they've ever played any other position except pitcher, and they said no, they've never. Never played third, never played first, they never hit. Uh, they just, that's all they do. They pick up a ball and throw it. They don't understand the game, they don't understand the rules. Uh, and that is what is, is killing baseball. And you look at the proliferation of the Hispanic player, uh, the guys coming out of Latin America uh, who, who really, really know how to play the game, it's because they played unorganized ball their whole life. They learned how to field a ground ball on a, on a terrible infield. They learned how to go to the opposite field. They, they know how to hit. They know how to run. They know how to steal. They know how to play the game. And that's what we don't have. And the inner city kids, you know, there's only, what, 4% African-American ballplayers in, in, in the Major League Baseball today? And I think the Reds have Brandon Phillips and uh, I forget who else. I, I think they have one or two. And you look at every other sport, and, you know, they, they dominate sports, but not baseball. And that's the, the fault of that is Major League Baseball. Oh, I, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. It is Major League Baseball's fault. It's also the fault of these parents that want their kids to be a one-sport athlete. When they're in high school, I'm a proponent, Mark, of these kids should play every sport that they can when they're growing up. They shouldn't specialize in one sport. They shouldn't specialize in one position. They shouldn't do it. I agree 100%. And uh, I talked to Chris Welsh, the Reds broadcaster. We had breakfast uh, a few months ago, and we were talking about the same thing. And he's, he's echoing exactly what we're saying, that so many of these kids specialize so early and they get burned out on the sport. I, I remember playing basketball in, in college, but looking forward to the baseball season. Had I played all winter, I, you know, just another game. And I remember playing baseball, looking forward to the basketball season and, and, and running track or playing football. You, you know, you, you wanted to do these other things. Kid, kids get bored. 
but you take away all the fun. And if it's no fun, then they're not going to be very good at it. And let the kid go out there and play. In high school, he had to play three or four sports. It rounds their bodies out. It gives them more coordination, more confidence. Uh, but this specialization is just absurd. And, again, I, at, the, at the end of the day, you, you really have to blame the parents for that because, in many cases, they don't understand sports. And, sure, a kid may say, oh, Mom, I, I want to play 100 games this year. Nah, no, you don't, and you're not going to. That, that, right. that would be the, the appropriate response for a 12-year-old kid who wants to play from April to November. And I'm going to throw this out, Mark. I'm not casting aspersions, but most of these leagues that are set up, they are just money-making machines. That's all they are. They, they want the entry fee from these parents of anywhere from 600 to $1,200 for your kid to play in this league. We're not guaranteeing play, playing time, but if your kid wants to play in this league, it's going to be 600 to $1,200, and once you pay it, thank you very much. That's the end of it, and then, then they end up, they've sold their soul to the devil. I agree, and again, it's funny, this, this summer, I mean, I knew this was out there, uh, but with our tryouts and talking to just scores of parents and coaches and, and guys who run training facil- facilities, um, you're right. I mean, it's, it's a money-making business, and the kids are the product, and the kids pay or the parents pay with, with this elusive dream that somehow their kid is going to be a first-round draft pick. And it, it's so absurd that... I feel sorry for the kids who are, are, are losing interest in the game. And I don't know what's going to happen in baseball the next 20 years because uh, Major League Baseball seems to be turning a, a blind eye to all this stuff. And, uh, you know, somebody needs to step up and, and make some changes and protect these kids, protect their bodies, protect them emotionally from from parents who don't know any better, who are well-meaning. Uh, the same with the coaches. They may be well-meaning, but they're really, really hurting these kids. Well, and that brings us back to Matt Harvey. I mean, when you look at him and you compare what happened with Steven Strasburg, where do they come up with this arbitrary 180 innings mark? Who in the world came up with this, and how did they come up with that number? Well, obviously it's a guess. I mean, whether it's a doctor or whether it's the team or the agent, somebody made... It's probably the medical staff. It says, well, 180 innings sounds about right. But, again, not knowing the kind of innings they're pitching, the stress, are they getting six days rest? I mean, if I don't know why they don't put some of the – if they're concerned about it, put these guys on a five- or six-day rotation, a six-day rotation, skip a start here and there to rest their arm, if, if, that's, the, if that's the concern. But you, you don't want Matt Harvey – pitching a useless game in April when he could be pitching in the World Series in October. That is just insane. And uh, I, I don't know why they're, they're not more strategic in analyzing if they want an innings limit. There has to be ways that you could facilitate that and not put stress on the kid's arm. Mark, I remember, and, and it's just because you and I talk about the Reds and the Indians a lot, but two pitchers that I remember that always had arm injuries were Gary Nolan and Jim Merritt. And I remember, this is back when I was growing up, whenever Gary Nolan would be coming back from an arm injury, what did they do with him? They put him in the bullpen and he pitched a few innings every once in a while to get his arm strength up. They didn't throw him right back out on the mound and have him start. No, but you bring up a guy who probably had the worst delivery in baseball, Gary Nolan. Gary Nolan. Yeah, he did. Again, the first time you saw, I mean, I didn't know it at the time, but looking back at his delivery, you you look at him now when he first came up. And don't forget, Gary Nolan came up when he was 18 years old, and he set a record that Rasiel Iglesias just tied this past week where he struck out 10 or more batters in three consecutive starts his rookie year. He came up when he was 18 and struck out 13 Giants in one game, including Willie Mays three times. I mean, that's how good Gary Nolan was. He was a Hall of Fame pitcher who got horrible, horrible coaching and horrible medical advice, and it ruined his career. But this guy could have been won 350 games in the big leagues. He was that good. But his, his motion, 
He he threw across his, his his body. All the torque was on his arm, and he threw sliders and breaking balls at an early age. And by the time he was 25, he was virtually washed up. You know, wow. I mean, uh, uh, this this is just evidence, Mark, that you and I don't talk about what we are going to discuss before we come on the show because this is a totally different direction than I thought this show was going to go tonight. But, you know, it brings me to another question that I want to ask you quickly before we get into the off-the-field problems with the Reds that have developed this week. You know, you've got the 71 Orioles that Bob Ryan yesterday on the Sports Reporters talked about them where they had Dobson, Cuellar, McNally, Palmer, all 20-game winners in 1971. All four of them, 20-game winners and they all pitched at least 280 innings throughout the year. Their leading save guy was Eddie Watt with 11. You've got the pitching staff with the Braves that had Smoltz and Glavin and Gary Ma- and, 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 and Maddox. And you've got those guys that they were they pitched every day. And Leo Mazzoni was their pitching coach, Mark. And he was a proponent of these guys throwing Every day, even after they had pitched the night before, they'd come back and they'd throw and get their arm loose again and get it limber. Why isn't he a pitching coach in the major leagues anymore? I have no idea. And, uh, again, a lot of this stuff is predicated on agents and money and maximizing the performance of these kids and valuing the radar gun as the – most important component in evaluating talent, which is absolutely absurd. And these kids come out at 15, 16 years old, and they know if they can throw 90 miles an hour, they're probably going to get it signed. And that is a fact. And so they they muscle up, and the coaches say, yeah, go let it rip. And (laughs) then they get signed, and by the time they're 23, they have surgery. And they're out of the game by the time they're 25. Somebody has got to, to look at this and understand that they're not teaching these kids how to pitch. If you can throw 90 or 92 miles an hour and when you're 16 years old, you don't need to worry about necessarily control. You don't need to worry about developing a secondary or third pitch. All you have to do is throw hard. And a 16-year-old kid is not going to hit a 92-mile-an-hour fastball very often. So they can they can become dominant. They get notoriety, they get signed, all those things, and then they get hurt. I mean, Dave, it's just astonishing when you look on Major League rosters and the number of kids, and I call these guys kids even when they're 25, who have had surgery already. And if they haven't, they will. And it's because of the coaching and the way they develop this pitching as early as you know, 10, 12, 15 years old. Well, a couple of things happened as far as the Reds are concerned this week, Mark, that came out, and they appear to be, upon investigation, intertwined with each other. First of all is the rumor that Brian Price, manager of the Reds, will be fired at the end of this year. Let's talk about this now for a few moments. What do you know about this situation, and does Brian Price even deserve to be coming back next year? Well, I was a big proponent of Brian Price when he was signed. And I I think had he been given the right team, I think he would have demonstrated he's a better manager than he he is. But some of the things he has done strategically during games is just mind-numbing. And what really gets me is is the Reds have been out of it effectively since the All-Star break. Why haven't they played these young players? Suarez, as an example, the shortstop. Next Next year, Zach Cozart is coming back, okay? And he is a great defensive shortstop. He, I think he's going to be pretty good offensively next year. So where are they going to put Suarez, who's hitting almost 300? He's got 10 or 11 home runs. He's driven in runs. He's a, he's a great hitter. Where are you going to play him next year? There's only one place he can play. It's left field. He hasn't played one inning in left field this year. Why not put him out there? And see what he can do now before spring training. Doesn't that make sense? Why not? That makes bring, a lot of sense. Well, the, the kid they got in his name escapes me now. They got him in the trade with the Giants from Mike Leake. Uh, he's had four bats for the Reds this year. He didn't hit well in the minors. Uh, he's got two home runs. 
And his first position is first base. That's his favorite position. And then he plays third. Why not try him in left field? Why not find out what the kid can do? You have 30 games left or 25 games left now. Find out what they can do. You're, the Reds are going to lose 100 games this year. Why are they you know, putting guys out there that are not going to be playing next year? It, it makes no sense to me. Well, maybe because Price knows he isn't going to be back next year. Then what do you got to lose? I mean, that, that, that should be a decision made by the general manager then. I want to see. Well, I, I think if, if Price is gone, I think Jockety's gone. Well, that may be so. But you would think in, in deference to finding out what these guys can do. And the, the reason I like Joe Madden so much from, from the Cubs, he, he forces his players to play more than one position. If you don't want to play more than one position for the Cubs, you're not going to play. I mean, he had Brian in left field. He had Brian at third base. He had uh, his shortstop playing second base, his second baseman playing shortstop, guys playing in right field. I mean, he... he oh, Schwarber. Schwarber, yeah. He moved, he, moved, he moved Schwarber from catcher to right field. And left field, but... Left field. Yeah. A perfect example. And next year, if the Reds are going to have Devin Mesoraco playing left field, fine. But you don't know that. But find out what these guys can do. And you're going to have to have... Uh, you know, some Billy Hamilton, by the way, he's the, the other African-American on the Reds team with, with uh, Brandon Phillips. But Billy Hamilton cannot be an everyday center fielder with, with the Reds, not, not the way they are offensively today. Now, can the Reds afford to have a, a 225 hitting center fielder? Sure, if everybody else is hitting. But when Jay Bruce is hitting 220, and your left fielder collectively is hitting 220. Uh, you you can't you can't have that. So the Reds have to make some changes. And I, I know I'm, you're going to bring up this Marlon Bird thing. Um, and I did not read the entire article. I heard it referred to several times on the internet and on radio, where right before he was traded, Marlon Bird refused to pinch hit when Brian Price asked him to. He just said basically, "Go to hell! I'm not going to do it." Well. That smacks of a clubhouse revolt. And I don't know how Brian Price handled it. Is, was that the, the last straw that precipitated the trade? In Brian's case, I hope it was. If I had a player who would not go up and pinch it when I told him to, his butt would have been gone the next day. Or he wouldn't have played for me the rest of the year. And I think the players would have respected that. Now, again, I don't know what happened. I don't know the chain of events. All I do know is that Marlon Bird refused to pinch hit. The rest of it, uh, I guess we'll find out later. Well, and a lot of people speculated that it had something to do, as you said, with the clubhouse demeanor, and Lance McAllister is the one that tweeted it out. Well, the clubhouse, obviously, when you have a team that's likely to lose 95 games this year, is not good. And to say the least, the players that are up there now, they don't care if the Reds win or lose a game. I mean, right now the Reds have the third, I think the third worst record in baseball, and they have a chance to have the number one draft pick. <laughs> and I don't know if they're seriously moving toward that, but this is a triple-A team. And this is despite one of the most miraculous years I've ever seen a player have in Joey Votto. What he's doing Dave, is absolutely historic. He's on base. He has been on base the second half of the season. In 13 games, he's been on base four times. In four games, he's been on base five times. He's on base every game three times. Certainly two times. They cannot, the guy does not make outs. He's hitting, what, 317, 318, 25 home runs, 70 RBIs, He's walked 100, I think they said 131 times, 139 times, something like that. This guy could easily walk 150 times. His on-base percentage is near 460 or more, and he has a chance to win the MVP. I mean, that's, that's the kind of year he is having with one of the worst teams in baseball. It's truly an historic year this guy's having. Well... Is Price back next year or not? No. I think he's fired the day after the season ends. Wow. 
Uh, he he's had they, they stuck with Dusty Baker all that time, and they're going to give him two years. Yeah, but Dusty Baker won three divisions and went to the playoffs. True. <clears throat> and he won ninety games four times. So you know, there's there's a difference here. Uh, now, can you blame? What would he have done? What would Price have done with the same roster that of talent that Dusty Baker had? That's the question. But I don't. I think it's beyond win loss at this point or pointing fingers. I think he's lost the clubhouse. He's lost the respect of the players, and you're not going to get that back. And he's not making well, he's not making that much money anyway. And, and Bob Ryan made another point yesterday. And Bob Ryan's normally a basketball reporter, but I thought he made some good points about baseball. Mark, managing in baseball now has become a push-button job. There's no thinking. There's no anticipating. If you're a manager like Bruce Bochy and Joe Madden, yeah, you, you don't push buttons. You go by gut feelings, and they win. They do things out of the ordinary. They do things out of the realm. But most managers, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call Terry Francona one of those managers, they are push-button managers where they've got the starting pitcher is going to pitch six innings they've got a guy for the seventh eighth the ninth you and i have discussed this with chapman on and on and on why is he only pitching the ninth why does your closer only pitch the ninth you've got a guy in the seventh inning that comes in he's that specialist eighth inning ninth inning doesn't matter if they throw three six nine twelve pitches in each inning they're coming with their other specialist in the next inning there's no gut feel anymore as far as managing is concerned. And I think that has a lot to do with where we stand in baseball today. It's too predictable. You know, something happened in the Cubs series a couple of weeks ago. I think it was in Chicago. But in the eighth inning, the Reds had a lead. And the Cubs were sending up Rizzo, Schwarber, and Coughlin, I think. Three left-hand hitters, okay? So <laughs> they, they have, in the, in the eighth inning, they, they bring in... Um, What's the guy who lost 10 games last year? Um, J.J. Hoover, a right-hand hitter, a right-hand pitcher to face the three best left-hand hitters on the Cubs. They got Chapman in the bullpen. Why don't you bring Chapman in in the eighth inning to face the three left-hand hitters who probably collectively won't hit a foul ball off Chapman and then bring Chapman in? Instead, they bring Chapman in and face three right-hand hitters. That's exactly what you're talking about. There's no... There's no creativity. There's, there's no looking at the logic of a situation. And that, that makes no sense to me. Hell, you could have the seventh inning of a game be the most important inning that a reliever is going to have to face a certain hitter in a certain situation. It, it, I, I don't understand that either, Dave. I, I agree with you 100%. Mark, when you, when you manage against a Joe Madden or a Bruce Bochy, you've got to be unconventional because they are so unconventional you don't know what they're going to do. So you've got to throw them off their game before they throw you off yours. The managers today are so worried about being second-guessed. The interviews after the game, they, they're forced to, to, to carry on. And the, the questions from the press, all that stuff. And it's so easy to say, well, I went with the book. You know, I went, he's my guy in the ninth inning. So, I, boy, I, I stayed with him. Yeah, but we needed him in the eighth to face Schwarber, you know, or we needed him to face Rizzo, and and we didn't get it. You know, it just it didn't make any sense. And and I, and I remember actually laughing about that, like what what you you got the greatest arm in baseball history, perhaps in the bullpen, and you're going to save him for for what? And that one last thing on Chapman. Uh, if they don't make Chapman a starter next year, somebody ought to be fired. Well, <laughs> well enough said. Yeah, I mean, you know, who who knows? I I have no idea who the who the Reds GM is going to be next year, let alone their manager. You know, somebody might come in and they might decide, yeah, they're going to make Chapman the the starter. But I I just don't know how you can go or or use him more than what you do. As far as the closer is concerned, like you said, I agree with what you say, Mark. Let him pitch a couple innings. It can't be any worse than what they're they're doing with him now. You know, before we wrap up, I want to talk very quickly about another incident that's going on with ESPN with another one of their reporters. Well, I'll tell you, Kurt Schilling. I don't want to get political here, but this guy's got some real 
radical views that I don't know, Mark. I know they've taken him off Sunday night baseball. I know they've taken him off through the baseball season. But how in the world this guy, A, ever got a job with ESPN, and B, has ever kept his job so far, I can't figure out what he's, what pictures he has on people at ESPN. I know some guys. I, I've never met Kurt Schilling. I play ball with some guys who know him from Boston. Uh, I won't mention their names. One of them is pretty famous. And they said that he, Schilling is an absolute jerk on and off the air. You know, he's uh, just an egocentric right-wing nut job. And uh, he couches it. You know, when you're talking about turning a double play or talking about pitching or whatever, you know, those things aren't important. Uh, but just people who know him just say he's, an, he's, a, he's a jerk. And baseball has plenty of jerks. Just because a guy can throw a baseball 95 miles an hour doesn't mean they're not a jerk. And baseball has their share. And the other thing baseball has their share of is a lot of un- uneducated ball players, guys who really don't know anything other than how to grip a baseball. And if anything hurts the sport, it's that. Unlike college football and college basketball, most or pro, even professional basketball, those guys go to college. At least they have some. They have to be smart enough to go to college. So that means they were probably pretty good high school students. Uh, baseball, you don't need that. And, and and baseball signs so many guys out of high school that are, are simply not ready uh, and, and not educated and, and 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 chilling. The things he talks about, just you shake your head like, where did that come from? Yeah, and and he wanted he ran for senate. That's right, and and, <laughs> and he got people supporting him. That's even yeah because he could throw a baseball. Yeah, and and had blood on his shoe one game. Yeah, you know I remember when the Indians back in in ninety seven ninety eight they were talking about acquiring Kurt Schilling from the Phillies, and a couple of years later the reports were were that Schilling told John Hart, "Don't trade for me. I'm not coming to Cleveland." And that was when the Indians were very, very good. And he just didn't did not want to come to Cleveland. Mark, what's going on as far as the Reds are concerned this week? Well, the Reds have a chance to go zero and six. Okay. And frankly, at this point, you know, to get a number one draft pick, uh, I can't say I'm I'm wanting the Reds to lose. I don't, but I'm not upset when they do, which is is quite frequently. Uh, so uh, they play the Cardinals, and uh, they played three games against the Pirates, and then the Cardinals come in for, for actually, I think, for four games. So uh, it's going to be a the Reds could go 0 and 7. I, I, I'm going to predict they're going to go 2 and 5, but uh, they have a chance. I mean, we're, we're pulling for them. They could they could go 0 and 7. Well, as far as the Indians are concerned, they've got the White Sox coming up tomorrow and Wednesday, and then the Tigers for a four game set. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday afternoon, and then the Royals come in, Mark, next week for four games, Monday through Thursday. Matter of fact, the Indians are starting an 11-game homestand this Thursday with Detroit. That's going to be the Indians' last home games, except for the final three with Boston coming up October 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. So we'll talk about it all coming up again next week. Thanks, Mark. Go Indians. Stay in the playoffs, Dave. (laughs) Hopefully they will. We'll talk to you again next week. Have a good one. That's going to do it for our Ohio Baseball Weekly Show here tonight. Don't forget, coming up this Thursday night is the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. That will be at 7 o'clock. And then coming up on Friday night, we have got high school football action for you here on Ultimate Sports Talk. That will be Waynedale traveling to Shreve, Ohio, to take on the Triway Titans. Game time at 7 o'clock. Pre-game show is at 6.30. Golden Bear Rewind is at 6 o'clock. So join us then. And then Mark Donahue and I will be back again next Monday night with another Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. That will be at 9 o'clock here on Alt. That's going to do it here for us tonight. Join us again next week. Our thanks to Greg Mitchell, our producer, but most of all, our thanks to you for listening. For Mark Donahue, I'm Dave Mitchell. Have a good week, everybody. The Wiz Kids had won it. Bobby Thompson had done it. And Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born. Marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball. Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. Bobby Feller, the scooter, 
barber and a nuke They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque Especially Willie, Mickey and the Duke 